We've been in a sermon series over the last several weeks called Game Changer, and it's a look at the life of Christ through the eyes of those whose lives He changed. And this morning, we're going to talk about He Who Has an Ear. Now, I, um, I turned 60 this week, and um, so some of my... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I'm not sure that really deserves applause, but, <laughs> but I appreciate your kindness anyway. And some of my dear friends, knowing that I struggle a little bit with my hearing, picked up some inexpensive hearing aids. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a game-changing moment for me. It has been less than thrilling uh, to, to help me with my hearing. But I found it incredibly ironic that when they gave that to me, this week's, this week's sermon is entitled, He Who Has an Ear. Now, if that sounds familiar, vaguely familiar to you, it is the first part of a phrase that Jesus used in his earthly ministry. Eight times we find it in the gospel, seven times we find it in the book of Revelation, and it goes like this, he who has an ear, let him hear. And you say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, no, what Jesus means is, listen up, pay close attention, this is important, only those who care enough to pay attention will receive a blessing from what I'm getting ready to say. That's what he meant. It was one of those clarion calls to listen carefully. Because we can, we can hear without listening. We have an old expression in, in English that goes something like this. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him. That's exactly right. You can't make him drink. Jesus is basically saying, I have the water of life to give you. I have words that will change your life. But if you don't listen, it won't mean anything. He who has an ear, let him hear. Sometimes Jesus used it in the plural. He who has ears, let him hear. Sometimes it was the singular, but the point was always the same. What I've got for you is important. Listen carefully. Now, about 12 hours before the crucifixion on Thursday night, Jesus encountered a man who, even though he had undoubtedly listened to Jesus numerous times in and around Jerusalem, he had never really heard Jesus. He had ears to hear. He just didn't take time to listen. He didn't connect with Jesus uh, until until that Thursday night when he literally lost an ear. It got cut off. It was a game-changing moment for this man whose name was Malchus, and it happened in an olive grove called Gethsemane. In his pain, he met Jesus, and I believe in meeting him was never the same again. Because you see, folks, when you, when you really get to know Jesus Christ, you'll hear him like you've never heard him before. Now, the week leading up to this moment in time began on Sunday, the day that we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday, and it was an event of great celebration. It, too, was a game-changing moment as the packed city of Jerusalem literally exploded with sounds of praise, words of praise, songs of praise for Jesus as he came riding into the city on a colt uh, that belonged to a donkey, and, uh, uh, and they cut down the palm branches, and they waved him in the air with their words of praise, and they carpeted the road with the palm branches as Jesus rode into the city. It was a glorious day. It was a joyous occasion, and it would be the last joyous 
occasion of that week as Jesus began to move ever closer to the cross on Friday. You see, by that Friday, this same packed Jerusalem would explode in shouts of crucify him instead of praise him. And everything changed. We are so fickle, we human beings. On that Thursday night, Jesus not only celebrated in the upper room the Passover with his disciples, he instituted the Lord's Supper for the first time, which we just celebrated there uh, a few minutes ago. And then they, they went from there to this olive grove uh, called Gethsemane. By the way, the, the, the word Gethsemane is a Hebrew word that means olive press. Obviously, there was an olive press in this olive grove. What more appropriate place for Jesus to go in this deeply agonizing time of prayer that he spent pressed down and crushed by the weight of the sin he would be taking to the cross. And when the prayer time is over and he and the disciples are leaving the garden, they encounter a band of soldiers led by religious leaders and Pharisees under the direction of this man named Malchus, who was probably walking side by side with Judas Iscariot. Malchus was the right-hand man. He was the chief servant of the high priest Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas would have been at the pinnacle of Jewish power at that time, powerful and influential. He was, he was the man, and he wanted Jesus out of the picture. And he wasn't at all opposed to executing Jesus if that's what it took to get him out of the way, but he wasn't about to go and have him arrested, so he sent his right-hand man, Malchus. Do not view this man as an innocent bystander. He was eager, most eager, to protect the rule and the authority of his master. When the two parties meet, Judas steps forward to greet the giver of life with the kiss of death. Then he stepped away, and those in authority seized Jesus. Finally, the disciples wake up to what is happening. They cry out, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And Peter, not waiting for an answer, grabs one of the two stubby little swords, more like a butcher knife. Peter grabs it, and he lunges for the guy who is closest to him, which would have been Malchus. Peter is not intent on defacing the guy, distorting his image. He is ready to decapitate him. And so Peter takes a swing. Malchus ducks, and an ear falls to the ground. For a breathless moment, the whole scene teetered on the brink of disaster. The battle-hardened soldiers were poised to retaliate. You could hear the metal rattle of their scabbards as soldiers reached for their swords. But on the edges of eternity in heaven were 12 legion of angels, 72,000, who were ready for just one word from Jesus to come and just take out everybody that was there. With a word, Jesus had calmed raging seas. Now with a word, he could take out his raging enemies. But in that volatile moment, Jesus did what no one expected. The last thing anybody would have thought he could have done or would have done. In the mix of all of that chaos, Jesus reaches over and restores the ear of Malchus. In that moment, Jesus demonstrated uncommon mercy and great compassion. He put into practice the hardest of his commands to us, love your enemies. Little things are so often overlooked. I mean, after all, it was just an ear. 
But I am, I am struck by the fact that only Luke records this miracle. This healing in the midst of murderous activity. Now, I realize, folks, that the purpose of the gospel narrative is to lead us to Christ and to point to his sacrifice that he would make for all of us. The story, you see, is about Jesus. It's not about Malchus. And yet, there is something so incredibly ironic that this is the last miracle that Jesus would perform in his earthly life before his death on the cross and his own resurrected miracle. It's the last miracle of his earthly ministry, and he lavishes it like a, a badge of honor on his enemy. What we don't know is how this impacted Malchus. What we don't know is what he did in these next few minutes. Did he leave the garden with the soldiers and Jesus in tow and, and, and just kind of pretend like nothing ever happened? Or, or did he linger in Gethsemane and stumble between, beneath an olive tree contemplating the look that he saw in the eye of Jesus when he touched the side of his head? In the days and weeks and months that followed, whenever Malchus scratched his ear, did he think of Jesus. And when Jesus reached out and restored his ear, did the Lord whisper, he who has ears, let him hear. Was Jesus saying to Malchus, pay attention. Know who I am. I'm the game changer. You need me. It was an incredible moment, a game-changing moment. And you say, okay, but what did the story have to say to us? Well, I think there's some good lessons that come out of this story. And here's, here's the first one, that is that compassion is always a proper response. Every human being conducts his or her life on the basis of some value system. And I suspect most of us here, not all of us, but I would expect most of us here to hold to a worldview that is espoused in God's Word. But not everybody outside these doors is going to share that common view. But just because somebody doesn't see things exactly like we see things does not mean that I should treat them with any less compassion than those who agree with me. I mean, folks, if Jesus could heal the wound of the very man who was carrying out a murderous plot against Jesus, then who am I not to extend compassion to, well, say a Kentucky fan? How can I withhold? <laughs> you, you get my point, don't you? It, it doesn't matter who the person is or what they believe or what they've done or where they're headed in life. Compassion, mercy, kindness is always appropriate. Isn't, isn't that what Jesus tried to model for us in his three-year ministry? Go the second mile, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor as yourself, treat others as you want to be treated. Jesus extended compassion, but never compromised the commands of God in the process, which, by the way, you need to remember that the commands of God are for our good, to preserve our life, to preserve our joy. They are not burdensome. That's why Jesus didn't compromise the Word of God, because He's the author of those commands, and He knows what's best for us. But it never stopped Him from being compassionate, merciful, and kind. we got to learn that. 
Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, he says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. You can speak the truth, but make sure you speak it in love. And when we treat one another like Jesus treated Malchus, that's when we earn the right to be heard. People have ears to hear. They just don't want to hear what we have to say unless they see the compassion of Christ in us first. When you and I are merciful, when we treat other people the way we would like to be treated, then we earn the right to be heard. You know, we, we live in a world that is filled with cranks, pessimists, bullies, and knotheads. There will always be those people to contend with. Sometimes they're in the church. I mean, after all, the religious leaders were the ones that opposed Jesus and eventually got him crucified. Some people in the church are just difficult. Most people are really good, but we have a few soreheads. Everybody in the church, every church has somebody like that. I preached a revival over in Illinois one time. I walked in early, uh, and there was only one older gentleman in the congregation at that point in time, went up, shook his hand, told him who I was, smiled at him, and, and he didn't say who he was. He didn't say welcome. He didn't say anything. He just pointed to the big round clock on the wall, and he said, see that clock? I expect you to use it. <laughs> I concluded right away, this was one of those difficult church people meeting there. I wanted to preach for an hour that night just to spite him, but I thought that wouldn't be compassionate either. So, But you know, those, those, there are people like that in the church. Now, now hear me, the church should welcome difficult and obnoxious people, but if that describes you, once you come to know Jesus Christ, you cannot stay that way. You must not stay that way because it's hard to reach out in the compassion of Christ when you yourself don't act like him. Sometimes difficult people are in the church. Sometimes these difficult people that we work with are right next to us on the job. And sometimes, sometimes we find these difficult people right in our own homes. A thief backed through the front door of the local bank. He wanted to keep his identity obscured, and he had forgotten the most important thing in, in his track, and that was a mask. So he backs in the door, and he brandishes his gun, and he says to everybody, everybody, look away. If anybody sees my face, I will shoot him. So everybody drops to the floor. Everybody stares at the floor. He gets all the money on his way out. He turns. He says, did anybody see my face? And there is a quiet moment, and finally one disgruntled wife said, I never saw your face but I'm pretty sure my husband got a glimpse. <laughs> Sometimes the disgruntled, difficult people are right under our own roof. <laughs> so how do, we difficult, how do we deal with difficult people, the, the hard people, the obnoxious people? Well, let me give you just a few thoughts. First of all, try to understand who they are. I, sometimes if we understood why they are the way they are, maybe it would give us the ability to be more gracious and understanding. They might be hurting, they might be scared, they might be discouraged, and you might be the easiest target, like Peter lunging at the first guy he could see, Malchus. Some people are like that. If you're handy, they take it out on you. So try to understand where the person is coming from. Here, here's something else. Apologize if you're the fault of it. 
You know, occasionally we offend people, and we don't know that we offend people, and so they come at us hurt and angry because they've been offended, and we don't know it. So ask them, have I done anything to offend you? And if they say, well, as a matter of fact, you have, then apologize. Sometimes an apology can heal a whole lot of wounds. And don't ever compromise your character in the face of obnoxious behavior. Jesus never did. Don't lower yourself to the offender's style or actions. You are no better when you respond like they respond. Don't retaliate. Rise above the moment. Be known for always doing what is right. These words come from Romans chapter 12. Paul writes to the church at Rome in verse 17. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Be known for your compassion and your kindness and your mercy, and those then who have ears to hear will want to hear what you have to say, because they've seen Jesus in you. And this is something else we need to remember, and that is, in the midst of everything, the church must always point others to Jesus Christ. There's one other facet of this story with Malchus that I want you to see, and, and I think I'm speculating a little bit, but I think it's on solid ground to suggest this possibility. Now, John, the Apostle John, is the only one of the gospel writers to give us the name Malchus. John writes 20 to 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and the funny thing about it is, people who were in a servant role were not named in, in any literature at that day and time. Servants just didn't count. So it's really odd, it's very unusual that John should point out this man's name unless, unless this man had become well known to the first century church because he had converted to Christ and maybe had risen to leadership in the early church and that his story had been told over and over and over again and people knew it was the story of Malchus because Malchus would say, he touched and healed my ear and I was never the same again. I want you to know this Jesus. You see, I believe that the only reason his name is spelled out is because the church would have known him as a great follower of Jesus Christ. And who couldn't be a great follower of Jesus Christ if he had reached out and touched your life in such a profound way? You see, Jesus graciously gave Malchus a second chance to listen, to hear what he had never heard before with a brand new ear. I'm thrilled that we have so much to celebrate today here in this church family, and, and yet we never can forget that we are each here out of our own brokenness, that we are here because somebody else pointed us to Jesus Christ. We are here because there's a little bit of Malchus in every one of us that have confronted and come up against Jesus Christ, but we are here by His grace, forgiven, because we've been able to hear what somebody shared. Uh, this is not a perfect congregation. I am not a perfect man. I am not a perfect preacher. I am far from it. But despite our failings,
God has been faithful to this body of believers through the years. And I got to tell you, when Elsie and I moved here 34 years ago, I never envisioned this moment. That we today would be celebrating the fact that we are a debt-free congregation. And we have, so, we have so many memories, wonderful memories from those early years on here. Okay, can I just reminisce for a couple minutes here with you this morning? Uh, on my first day uh, in the office, I got here on time. I was starting out a day. I didn't realize it, but the doors don't unlock when you unlock them with the key. I locked my keys on my desk in my office, locked myself out. The phone is ringing. There's nobody else around because I'm it. I'm the sole staff person at the church here. And I had to walk somewhere to call one of our elders' wives to come and unlock my office door on the very first day. It was not a good start. I thought, it may be downhill from here. It, it was also one of those, the early days were, were, were kind of challenging. The congregation sang to an organ that had been struck by lightning. Uh, the offerings were such that we had to decide which bills we would pay and which bills we would put off because we couldn't pay all of our bills at, at the same time. Uh, mission support was very sporadic and random. And our very part-time custodian made $15 a week. But the people were wonderful and were dedicated to keeping this church alive. They did not give up. That's not to say we didn't have some things to learn. I remember one Sunday morning when uh, at, at, the, at the original building down the road on Winslow, right here in the second row, um, a, a mother and her young daughter came in. They were new. You could spot a visitor when you only have about 80 people there. You could spot a visitor right away. They came down, sat in that second pew right there, and I was on my way over to greet them when the older couple that always sat in that pew came down the aisle. He beat me there, and in a very gruff voice, he said, you're in our seats. And so they went out that way, out the door, and we didn't see them again. I, I learned that day there's just some things you don't mess with. You don't mess with a man's family. You don't mess with his politics. You don't mess with his pew. <laughs> and it's funny because we are creatures of habit. And, and so there were things that uh, we had to work through. Uh, I'll never forget the night that uh, after the fire, the fire came in 1991, put us in the high school auditorium for two years as that building was destroyed and we got ready to build up here. And the night of our congregational meeting when the, when the architect was presenting his plan, everything was going great. Everybody was loving it until he used the C word, chandelier. <laughs> and, and we are not a chandelier. Actually, the plan's called for a light fixture. I don't know why he used the word, but it just changed the whole tenor of the meeting. All of a sudden, people with lovely faces became distorted faces, and they begin to talk, why are we spending money on a chandelier? We don't need a chandelier. The whole meeting became, it was like one of those times I couldn't get to the architect fast enough to say, don't use that word. And so to this day, we don't talk about chandeliers. We have never had a chandelier in this building. We will never have a chandelier in this building. And if we did, nobody could play it. So we have decided <laughs> not to have any chandeliers. Today is particularly meaningful to me. The week after that congregational meeting, meeting uh, one of the more influential men in the congregation stopped me in the foyer at South's Auditorium right before the service, and he was obviously really upset maybe even a bit angry, and he accused me of trying to bankrupt and ruin the church, and that if we went into this building program and incurred that debt, that's exactly what would happen, and he wasn't going to stand for it. That was right before I went in to preach. I don't know what I preached that day. I just know my mind wasn't on the sermon. I was trying to figure out, what have I done? Maybe, maybe we're making a mistake. You know, all the doubts came flooding through. But can I tell you that God is faithful? God continued to bless. 
The man and his family stayed with the church. He's now at home with the Lord. And today, for the very first time in the life of this congregation since they became Sherwood Oaks Christian Church, we are debt-free. You... You are an awesome congregation, and for our family, and I think I can speak for the rest of the staff as well, but I can speak for sure for my family. We are incredibly grateful. It has been a privilege to make this journey with you through the years and to come to this moment together as a family. I am grateful beyond words for a dream come true. But we must always remember that being unleashed from this debt means little if we don't keep pointing others to Jesus Christ. Today, we celebrate. Tomorrow, we are unleashed to point others to Jesus Christ in ways that we maybe never have had the opportunity before. He is the game changer. He is the God of the miraculous. He is the one through his sacrifice of love who has made eternal life possible for us. John writes in his letter, 1 John, this is how we know that what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Keep pointing others to, pe- others to Jesus Christ. Keep being compassionate. Love as he has first loved us. If you travel through Washington, D.C., you might cross the Potomac on the Arlen D. Williams Jr. Memorial Bridge and you say, who in the world was Arlen D. Williams? Well, He was a passenger on that January 13th, 1982 Air Florida Flight 90 that crashed in the icy waters of the Potomac. There were only a handful of people that actually survived the crash, and when the rescue helicopter reached the waters of the Potomac, they lowered a rope to Arlen Williams, and he handed it off to somebody else, and then to another somebody, and another somebody, five five people were rescued, and Arlen just keep passing the rope, and the, the last time down, His energy was spent in that icy water. He could not hang on, and he slipped beneath the surface of the water, giving his life so that those five people could have a second chance to hear, to live, to find Jesus Christ, perhaps. The bridge is named in his honor, but it brings to mind those words of Jesus, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did, and If you have an ear to hear, that's what he wants you to hear this morning. That he is not the option. He is life. He is truth. He is hope. And the church is his memorial. And it's our responsibility to point others to Jesus Christ. This is a game-changing moment for all of us.